Okay, hey Marissa. Testing. We're not testing. We're just. Oh, we're, we're already live. This is happening. Yeah, we're recording. Okay. Oh, okay. Hello. Hi. Uh, so I'm gonna ask you some flashcard questions based on this t- uh, Korean TV show okay. called Reply 1997. So you just you just answer based on like how, what you would do if you were this person. Okay. Do I have to imagine that person in 1990? I haven't seen Reply 1997. Yeah. You don't have to know anything about okay, it. Okay. So as if I was which person, myself or another person? Because <laughs> I can be a character. You don't have to be a character. You don't have to be a character. Like, what would Marissa do if okay. she were in these shoes? Okay, if I was Marissa, got it. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's say you're a 17 year old girl in high school in Korea. You're a student. You're obsessed with this band uh, called HOT. And you're like obsessed with them. You have like all their posters. You're obsessed. Of course, and, um, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. So you're, like, obsessed with them, and, you know, you go out to their concerts and stuff, you go and, like, stalk their houses and shit. So you come home very late, and then your dad is yelling at you, and you keep fighting with him, and then eventually he gets fed up with you, so he cuts all of your hair off. What do you do? Okay, first of all, my dad wasn't around when I was growing up, but if he did, what do I, he cuts off all my hair? Oh, single tear. Single tear. I would. That would totally be the appropriate use of a single tear. Single tear, and then, um, okay, it's still recording. Uh, then I would go to my room, and I I might write a poem in my my diary, and maybe I would write a letter to H O T and be like, H O T, save me from this patriarchal bullshit. Okay, very good answer. All right, I like that. All right, let's say uh, you and your best friend are obsessed with the band HOT, right? Mm-hmm. But then one day you find out that your best friend is actually listening to the, your favorite band's rival band. And she has like posters of their stuff all over her room and stuff. And you feel really betrayed. What do you do? Oh, I feel betrayed. Well, you're telling me I'd feel betrayed because me as a person, I wouldn't feel betrayed. I'd be like, you know what? This is a good opportunity for me to have more HOT time to myself. Then I wouldn't have any competition for my friend. And then I could be the like her suit, like, like the biggest fan of HOT. I wouldn't have any competition. Right. But if I felt betrayed, I'd be like, I guess we're not friends anymore. HOT is the only group of people who is going to support me in life okay. and if she left me like that you know that would just further confirm that this world is meaningless bullshit <laughs> right. except for hot except for H-O-T. except for them okay all right okay so let's say um okay you're you're not this girl anymore you're a 17 year old boy now okay okay um you actually like the 17 year old girl <laughs> that- that's how 17 year old boys sound like yeah it's like a little more, more internalized. <laughs> right? So it's like a boner in my pants that I can't share with anyone. It's like it's there. Yeah. So he he. Okay. So you you as this seventeen year old boy, you you have a crush on this seventeen year old girl, but then one day you find out that your older brother also has a crush on her. What do you do? <gasps> How much older is he? That fucker. Like almost ten years older. Oh shit. Oh okay. It depends if I'm an alpha or a beta. Am I a middle child or am I the second? You're the second. Do I have a younger sibling? Ooh, Appa. I might just be like, you know what? He is better looking. He is going to know what to do with with all that, and I'm not ready. But, you know, I might let him go for it, and I'd watch, and I'd try to learn, but secretly inside, I would be broken knowing that 
you know, I'd be like, I have taste and I, you know, I have taste because if my brother likes her and I like her, then I'm going in the right direction. But at the same time, secretly, I would never forgive him. I would let him have her for sure, but I would never forgive him ever to the grave. Okay, that's intense. Okay, thank you. Uh, I love that answer. Final question. Uh, you're that 17-year-old girl again, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, you go to your car, you open the back seat, and out pops your mom and dad because they were fucking. What do you do? <laughs> oh! I have a car? <laughs> and they fucked in it? I'd be so mad. Because you know how much work I would have had to put to fucking get that car? I would be so mad. I'm like, you fucking have a car. You didn't help me get this car. And now you want to fuck in my car? First of all, you all haven't been talking in a long time. And now you're coming out here trying to try to start some shit, trying to make some siblings. I would be upset. But you know what? There's a part of me that's... Well, if I was this girl, I probably wouldn't be as capitalistic as Marissa. But Marissa would have been like, y'all owe me some gifts. But if I was this girl who was obsessed with HOT, I would probably back away, close the hatchback back away because it's a hatchback for sure you know (laughs) and i walk away and i go by myself um like one of those yogurt drinks at one of the like the late night stores and Uh i I talk to the guy who's like kind of creepy and maybe has a couple pimples he's like maybe like 30 but has like adult acne Uh and i talk to him and he's secretly into me but i don't know what to do because i just saw my parents fucking and in the end he gives me the the yakult or the probiotic drink or maybe the banana milk for free and i'm like oh shit and momentarily i'm distracted from the fact that i just saw my parents fat fucking by the fact that i got a free banana milk um, and then I return to my existential dread. Thank you, Marissa. You're, you're welcome. <laughs> you're welcome. Totally. Welcome to K Drama School. I'm your host, Grace Jung, and class is now in session. a show called Reply 1997. It is written by Yi Wujang and directed by Shin Wonho. And they collaborated on the other two Reply shows, Reply 1994 and Reply 1998. Reply 1997 came out in 2012 on TVN. And that was during a time when people did not have that high of an expectation for this show because it was on cable. And in 2012, Korean cable ratings didn't really matter too much. Like, they were not breaking enormous records at the time. But after the success of this show, it turned a lot more heads and their attention towards cable, both from the industry and with viewers at home. The show is written by writer Yoo Jung, who started out as a variety show writer. She wrote for some very... Very well-known, legendary Korean variety TV shows like Heroin 6, which was a comedy variety show that aired from 2004 to 2006, featuring six uh, female comedians. Um, some of them were more like actors or singers, but for the most part, they were comedians. And it was a hilarious show. It was amazing. Uh, Lee also wrote for Two Days, One Night or Il Bagir, which was on KBS. She wrote for season one, which is the... Um, original sort of like 
groundbreaking series at the time that aired from 2007 to 2012. And it featured some big names at the time, like Kang Wo-dong, Eun Ji-won, Yoo Soo-geun, Kim Jong-min. And uh, that, that show eventually went through multiple revamps and recastings. And in Korea, what they do is whenever they revamp a show by recasting people, they call it a, a new season, like season two or season three, season four. So because of some scandals associated with Kang Wo-dong, which was for tax fraud or tax evasion, and Yoo Soo-geun, which was for gambling, like I said, gambling in South Korea is illegal. And then much later, there was a sexual assault case linked to Cheong Jun-young, which if you follow K-pop news, you would know this very well. Uh, so they had to um, sort of cancel the show and then revamp it with, with new cast members. Yoo Jung wrote on other very successful variety shows like Qualifications of Men and Grandpas Over Flowers. The format for Grandpas Over Flowers got picked up by NBC in 2016, and that was remade into a show called Better Late Than Never for American audiences. And that was conceptually the same thing. It's about a, a group of old male celebrities who travel and bicker throughout the whole journey. And Will Shatner and Henry Winkler were, were on that show. And it lasted two seasons on NBC. Yu Jung wrote a couple other shows you'll recognize that are currently on Netflix, uh, at least in the U.S. territories. First is called Prison Playbook, and the other is called Hospital Playlist. Yu Jung's shows always get their time context from music. So whatever, whatever music was popular in the in that era, that contemporary period that she's writing from, like music sets. The tone. But unfortunately, uh, in the U.S., this is U.S. territories only. I don't know about other countries, but um, the Reply series is also on Netflix currently. And Netflix did this horrific thing where they removed all the music cues, the original music cues that were made in the Korean production. So the intertext of the music that indicates like in terms of timeline, like, oh, this is from 1997 or 1998 or the year 2000. Like music is the big indicator and Netflix removed all of it. And I don't know whether to blame Netflix for this. I don't know whether to blame Cocoa for this. Uh, regardless, that is unacceptable, okay, to do that, especially if it's a series where the music plays a major role. I mean, music is like a whole nother character in the Reply series. And to remove them or replace them with bullshit other kinds of sounds is, that's criminal. I mean, it's really fucked up. All right. I mean, you're ruining the show. You might as well not even make those shows available in these territories if you're going to go and do that. So I say boo to Netflix and boo to Cocoa for making that horrendous and heinous mistake. Uh, if you can't get the music clearances for these shows, then don't bother distributing them because you're not doing it justice. You're being irresponsible with these shows. So that's my soapbox moment there. Prison Playbook was slightly different in that Yu Jung was credited as the creator and not necessarily the writer of that show. So music didn't play too large of a role in that show, even though it's called Prison Playbook. But in all three of the Reply series and in Hospital Playlist, you'll notice that the characters are very influenced by the, the popular songs of that era. 
I love the Reply series because while the shows do not have seasons, they do feature recurring cast members and share intertexts with overlapping storylines in every single show. The parental figures played by Song Dong-il and Lee Il-hwa are in all three of the shows and they have they use their actual names Song Dong-il and Lee Il-hwa and while the children are played by different actors and they all have different characters, these parental figures remain consistent. on all three of the shows. So Sang Dong-yeo actually plays a doppelganger in Reply 1994 of himself from the other the earlier show that he was in. So it's just um these like weird sort of wacky gimmicks and I attribute that boldness to Yoo Jung's variety show Writing Days because Korean variety TV is all about weirdness and the weirder it is, the funnier it is and the more memorable it is. Reply 1997 follows a group of high school kids. Uh, Jung Eunji, or Eunji from the girl group A-Pink, is the female protagonist on the show. She appears alongside Seo In-guk, Ho-ya from Infinite, Shin So-yul, and Eunji-won, and Lee Si-yeon. Reply 1997 has a closeted gay character named Jun-hee, played by Ho-ya, and he's a very introverted character. He's in love with Yoon-jae, who is the male protagonist on the show. And although Yoon-jae eventually ends up with Si-won, Uh, Shiwon knows about Juni's uh, queer identity and um, is very respectful of it and supportive. And while the show's narrative was very hush-hush about Juni's gay identity, I still liked that a gay character was on this show, right? At the very least, there was an appearance. And you get another queer character in Reply 1994, but his queer identity is greatly muted. It's greatly uh, suppressed. Uh, even more so than it was in Reply 1997. So I don't know why that kind of choice was made. It might have something to do with producers um, and the great popularity that these series was getting. So either way, um, I didn't think that was too cool. But these are small steps forward, so they can be recognized at the very least. The show's protagonist, Shiwon, is obsessed with the boy band H.O.T. And for those of you who know H.O.T., congratulations, you're old as fuck. If you don't know who H.O.T. is, you should probably gain some awareness of the group because they are the first generation K-pop boy band that marks the early era of boy groups in K-pop Hollywood explosion of the, of the 1990s. And because of that, you have cameo appearances from Muni Jun and Tony An. They're both H.O.T. members. And I also love that the female comedians were on the show. Like female comedians like An Young-mi and Shin Bong-san, you know, they make cameo appearances. You also have a, a cameo appearance from Shin Dong-yup, who is a uh, comedian and MC. He's an actor and he was a big part of 1990s Korean television. So the show has a lot of that late 1990s pop element. You know, it, it ha- it's like a very... It's a very loud and clear shout out to those markers from that era. Shiwon's obsessed with SES as well. If you know SES, um, you also know HOT. I mean, if you know SES, you probably sing SES songs at Norebang when you go there. Like I, I, All the millennials um, who grew up around that era, they know SES and they will sing SES songs at Norebang. Uh, I thought it was really cute how the female... characters on Reply 1997 would style their hair like Pada from SES with the white pom-pom hair ties and the three strands of hair that fell on her face. It's so cute. And then um, also this rivalry between SES fans and Finkel fans or the rivalry between HOT fans and Jexkiss fans, right? 
uh, Eun Ji Won making this appearance on the show has this meta quality because he was a part of Chex Kiss and a major part of 1990s Korean media. And he's like on the show watching TV with these younger kids who are playing basically the same age like they're all playing high school students and they're watching Unjiwon on television or in movies um and Unjiwon's sitting there just playing a different character it's just so weird and interesting i loved shiwon's character because she's so ordinary and yet very unique uh, i found her to be extremely relatable because she's not the smartest in her school she's not um like a the most gorgeous person in her group either. Uh, in fact, that's an ongoing joke. A lot of the men make fun of her very plain look, but she's hilarious and she's loud. She's assertive. She's passionate. She knows what she wants. She goes after it. And I find that admirable. And then eventually she grows up and becomes this variety show TV writer, which I guess is somewhat autobiographical of the show creator. I love that this show is set in Busan. Unji has a very real uh Busan dialect, right? The the southern Gyeongsang province dialect and she brings it out and executes it beautifully on the show. Um Seo-in-guk does the same. He grew up in Ulsan, so he has this great uh Gyeongsang Namdo dialect and that to me is it makes me feel at home because I grew up with that Gyeongsangdo dialect my my dad is from Gosong my mom is from Hapcheon I was born in Busan so I definitely recognize that dialect and when I hear it on television it makes me feel at home anyway I thought it was very admirable to have this kind of heroine on TV where like looks and brains don't matter at all I think that's a noble message because the reality is those things don't really matter unfortunately those kinds of elements started to slip away from the 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 scripts in the other two series uh because they casted very beautiful and skinny women as the protagonists on those shows but um i liked that reply 1997 didn't really emphasize those aspects about femininity and it was because of the success of reply 1997 that we have reply 1994 and reply 1988 each of which got better and better in terms of storytelling and production All three shows have similar themes though. One big consistent theme is that whoever the female protagonist ends up marrying remains a mystery man until almost the last episode. And this is because um with each show there's usually just two girls and then like four boys. Um in Reply 1988 it was different. It was one girl. Oh wait, no, I guess there were two girls because um Hedy's character has a sister, but for the most part it was just like two girlfriends and then four boys and it was always like who's going to end up with who like that kind of thing um but you know i honestly i just find this whole like notion of making marriage the win marriage as the end game to be a bit of a shitty thing like i think it would be way more radical to have your female protagonist be a single woman in the end You know, I want more Korean dramas try and do this. I want to see more movies and TV shows in Hollywood do this because marriage isn't always a win. Marriage is also a huge compromise in many ways and producers never frame it as that. They always make singlehood appear like a compromise in life and I disagree with that. I find singlehood to be um incredibly liberating. So stop ending women's narrative on marriage. How about that? You know, 
Like, why not end female protagonists' narratives with freedom or divorce or just satisfied to be single? You know, like, why why can't we have that? You know, we have heroes in Mad Men and in Breaking Bad. Like, they end up single, you know, divorced and divorced and dejected. But they're still heroes, right? Anti-heroes. And um, I don't think uh, a woman's singlehood should even be antagonized as like an anti-hero quality. It should just be like, oh, this is a win. (laughs) Today's guest is Julaine Lee. She is a Korean-American poet based in San Francisco. Her book is entitled Not Your White Savior. She is also an adoptee who grew up with a white family in the Midwest. And a lot of her experiences as such are in her book, which is amazing. And I can't think of a better way to bookend the last day of AAPI Heritage Month than than to have this conversation with Julaine. So what a treat. Let's talk to Julaine. Wow. So three years. Goodness. Yeah. You moved up there for work, I suppose. Mm hmm. Okay. Hmm. And uh, how's it been? (laughs) Did you live in San Francisco before or was that like a new thing? No. So when we met... I, you know, I was living in Long Beach. So I lived in Long Beach for five years. I moved there from Minnesota where I grew up. Right. Um, And so then, yes, I moved up to the Bay Area for a job, which I actually Mm -hmm. just left and started a new job. Um, And then, um, no, I had never lived in the Bay Area before. I wasn't looking for a job. I was not trying to move. That's for sure. I was pretty happy in Long Beach. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the opportunity worked out and I'm glad it did because I'm pretty happy up here too. I miss LA, I miss Long Beach yeah. for sure, but yeah. um, no, it was, it's been a good change and I just started a new job this month and um, that's been good too. So. Congratulations. Is that the teaching job you mentioned? Um, no. So I left teaching a while ago. Okay. Um, now I'm working for Stanford Children's Health as a senior data analyst in human resources okay and um yeah it's been i just finishing up my third week now oh wow they you know a lot of times when um i've worked different places it's like oh bring your whole self to work and we care about you and everything and you know there's but there's also, I feel like, kind of some unspoken rules about just kind of leave certain things at the door. Yeah. And, you know, the um, the trial for Derek Chauvin was going on, and the verdict came in this week. And our HR leader, our chief um, HR officer, she sent an email, like, Tuesday afternoon and said the verdict is in. It hadn't. We didn't know yet what it was, but they knew that it was going to be read that afternoon. And she said, we're going to create some time tomorrow afternoon for a healing circle. It's optional, but, you know, this has been, you know, a hard Mm. time for a lot of people. So I just appreciated that they, like, you know, are willing to have, you know, space for these conversations. And then Mm -hmm. yesterday they had another, um, I guess it's a monthly um, series, which is usually more focused around patient care, but then they used that time this month to talk again about, you know, different people's experiences with, you know, how they're dealing with not just the pandemic, but also, again, this specific week because the verdict came out and um, our, our HR leader again spoke, but also our CEO 
mm-hmm. um, and then um, another um, executive as well. So again, I just mm-hmm. appreciate that they were like super transparent um, about yeah. like what they've struggled with and, right. you know, and just that we need to, you know, have these conversations in order to, you know, really support each other. So for like, sure. the first time I've worked anywhere where they're just like, yeah, we're going to talk about this. It's not about having the perfect conversation or having all the answers right now, but it's exactly it's about having the conversation. Yes. Yes. No, that's beautiful. And that's so like California in a way (laughs) that's so Bay area in a way like, um, yeah, it's like very, you know, progressive. Um, and you know, like, I don't know if it's of the times or I don't know if it's, if it's specific to the local culture, but I would say it's a mix of both, but 80% of it is kind of that Bay area vibe, you know, that, that particular kind of Bay area progressivism that I note, like, cause you know, like I grew up in New York, but I, you know, and New York's a very liberal place. However, um, I still, you know, like up until six months ago, Back in New York, when I was visiting, uh, there were still people who were very resistant. And I'm talking about liberal progressives, right? Mm-hmm. They were very resistant to concepts like they, them, theirs and non-gender oh. binary. Yeah, yeah. And wow. I was just like, why? Why are you against that? You know, and they were just like, it's ridiculous. Like, I don't get it. It's like a gender is, you know, self-explanatory. I was like, but it's not it's always. Not. No, and no. that is why they, <laughs> this concept exists, right? Yeah. So in, with, with certain regard, uh, I would say um, the Bay Area is a lot more progressive than New, than New York in some aspects. And even, you know, mm-hmm. the whole weed culture too. Like mm-hmm. just the fact that New York allowed it like literally like yesterday. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah <laughs> recreational exactly. weed it's so yeah. like y'all are such squares y'all are so uptight new york you know <laughs> you know why I, yeah i wonder why that is but mm. i mean when you're talking about pronouns because the previous um employer i was at is a health tech startup very small and so mm-hmm. you know just like how do you address diversity when you don't have like the affinity groups or the business resource groups, you know, for Asian Mm -hmm. employees, black employees, Latino employees. And Mm -hmm. so I had gone to a session um, around like, you know, diversity and specifically LGBTQ. And I I asked, I said, what do we do as a small organization? And and the speaker said, you know, you can start by just in your LinkedIn profile, just don't just put your name, put your pronouns and Mm. put that in your email signature. And, and I did. And, um, when I was interviewing a candidate too, I, I tried to start by when I introduced myself, just say my pronouns too. Right. And I'll never forget. There was one person who they said, you know, when you introduced yourself and you shared your pronouns, that just meant so much to me. Yeah. And I was like, wow, you never know the power that that can have. And oh, yeah. I've noticed a few um, of my, you know, um, new colleagues that like their mm-hmm. email signature will also you know use their they use their pronouns with a link to you know more information around you know the importance of using pronouns and so I yeah. again I'm grateful that people are you know using you know opportunities you know as, as you know mundane as your mm-hmm. email signature but as mm-hmm. a way to kind of open up the conversation it's not required that everybody yes. do that but mm-hmm. again it's you know an opportunity to educate people and yeah um you know yeah. hopefully others also feel more comfortable then too 
And that is how we normalize it by integrating it into our day to day, right? Mm -hmm. And um, not treating it like an event, but just it's part of our current daily life. And right. yeah, I, I say that that is a huge incentive. If somebody in that space um, who feels marginalized senses comfort, liberation, understanding and recognition, I mean, then why should we deny them of those feelings, right? Right, right. Especially when they lead a marginal life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I like that. And I know, like, what a diehard um, activist you are, you know? <laughs> like, in so many, so many facets, you know? Like, uh, I, I still remember when you invited me and some other local, like, L.A., um, Korean Americans to your, I think it was like a poetry reading, um, but it was like in conjunction with the um, the April nineteenth as Haiku mm. event, right? Mm -hmm. Or is it April 29th? Yes. The the mm -hmm. um, I don't. I mean, it's it's wrong to call it riots, but there right. there was a social uprising, it was a civil right. uprising in Los Angeles, um, which is you know. Um, uh, problematically called the LA riots, mm -hmm. but you know, it was basically an event that brought together Korean Americans and black Americans into one space. And there was this kind of like artistic expression um, mm -hmm. and sort of a union and gathering. And then afterwards we all ate Korean food together. And, <laughs> um, and I just remember you with your chopsticks and your like you brought your own utensils and I was just like yes this is what I'm talking about like nobody else has the guts to do this but you do it you know boldly unapologetically and you say we just produce so much waste you know I just remember you saying that you know and even like even again like you you insert it everywhere like there was a like an elderly black man who was like asking me, well, how do I use chopsticks? And I was kind of like trying to teach him. And he kept saying, okay, honey, okay, honey. And you were like, she's not honey. She is a grown woman named Grace. Okay. And I was just like, fucking Julie. <laughs> well, I hate that when people like, you know, I mean, especially when you're in an intimate environment like that, sure. where, you know, it doesn't take much to learn someone's name, right? Mm -hmm. You know, and that whole event, you know, another poet has asked me to, you know, work on that with them, says grateful to, you know, help create that space. Um, and I think, you know, we did originally call it, you know, a commemoration of the LA riots. And, right. and I was educated because people kind of pointed that out to me that, hey, why are you calling it riots? It mm -hmm. should be, you know, it was a, you know, an uprising. Or right. I asked, I asked, you know, started asking some other poets I was like well what what would you call it? and they said it was a rebellion you mm -hmm. know or and so it, it was an education for me to yeah. kind of step back and see like how language really does you yes. know influence you know mm -hmm. our, our frame of thinking and so on yes um yes. but yeah that was I mean I think we need to continue having more you know spaces like that it's, yeah you know yeah. virtual or you know in person hopefully again soon <laughs> yeah yeah and i'm just realizing now like uh coincidentally it's april and it's mm -hmm. 23rd six days mm -hmm. from now it will be an yet again another anniversary of that um 
that let's call it an awakening you know Mm -hmm. it was a moment Mm -hmm. of reckoning that time Mm -hmm. um yeah and you know i remember that this was i suppose a teaching moment like i was a master's student at the time at ucla and we had just watched uh spike lee's do the right thing um which was you know i mean it's, it's a real film right like that really does kind of portray some of that that tension between the the black community and um korean american greengrocers but like i i remember you know just ki- kind of like i think i had posted a blog post in response to the readings because i was part of the assignment uh, the readings and the screening and i had said like oh like you know with the riots and blah 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 and then in class like my professor I don't know. She, I I think it was an interesting teaching moment because she had put me on the spot by calling me out, which I don't agree with. I don't think that's um I don't think that is helpful in ensuring a safer environment for students in order to make sure that teaching and learning is productive and impactful but Mm -hmm. it was a moment that i won't forget because she was like well grace mentioned grace said some inflammatory things in the blog post by saying that these are a riot that this is a riot you know and then i was just like but it was a riot like they were breaking things and setting shit on fire and then she was like well have you considered other words like uprising or rebellion Mm -hmm. and i was like i had not considered those words because i nobody fucking told me about them you know (laughs) Um, So, like, that was a very critical moment for me because while I agreed with her, right, and while I was learning something and I was, you know, kind of coming to an understanding, Mm -hmm. I did not agree with her method of approach. Um, And that's something I try to be hyper aware of when I'm teaching students Mm -hmm. because students, when they're young and they're in an institution where they're learning right Mm -hmm. they will make mistakes they're Mm -hmm. supposed to make mistakes that's the space where mistakes are allowed Mm -hmm. right and so to kind of um, guide them and correct them but without making them feel attacked right Right. while ensuring that safer environment I think that is such a nuanced like very nuanced and difficult thing to accomplish Mm -hmm. and um yeah, like I try to be mindful of that at all times. Did you have like moments like that when you were teaching in the past at all? Well, I think when I was teaching high school math back in Minnesota, gosh, this is so long ago. Mm. Um, I think my goal was always because I would have students come in and this was high school. So I would right. have students come in the first day of class. They'd be like, I hate math. It's like, <laughs> okay. That's okay. It's okay if you hate it. I, yes. I, I'm not here to make you love it. Right. I'm here to help you yes. feel confident in it and to yeah. um, be able to get the credits you need to graduate, yeah. you know, totally. and to, to not hate the class. Like, right. you know, like, I don't want you to have anxiety coming in here every day. Exactly. That was my goal. And you don't all have to walk out of here getting A's, like, Exactly. You know, whatever, do what you need to do, but you mm-hmm. need to feel empowered and it's okay mm-hmm. to ask questions. Mm-hmm. Um, and I always had those students who were like, well, I can do it all in my head. And I was like, well, I can't see in your head. And part, <laughs> of the, part of the grade is what you're putting on paper to show me how you got your answer. Right. Um, and I remember one student, she, you know, and her parents would come to conferences and they'd say, you know, well, she's liking your class. You know, she doesn't love math, but she likes your class. And then by the mm. end of the class, you know, the, the term, she said, you know, 
I don't love math, but I can do it and I like your class. And that yeah. to me, that's better than any letter grade that somebody can ever get or any teacher evaluation. Because, you know, that yeah. I think a lot of people, what I've learned over time is that nobody comes into their first math class hating it, but mm -hmm. they have some kind of traumatic experience mm -hmm. or maybe mm -hmm. they moved and were placed in the wrong level. And mm -hmm. then it just, it just this domino effect because it's so like, you know, sequential that if you miss, you know, a certain you know, topic or something, you're just right. lost, you know? So right. I've heard that from, you know, friends and stuff too. It's like either they moved and got placed in the wrong class or they had a yeah. bad teacher, whatever yeah. that means, bad teacher. But yeah. I, you know, I had a bad teacher, you know, in college in a math class and we right. were just like barely surviving, you know, <laughs> just right. we would go to class and try and take notes and then we'd have study group afterwards because we had to teach each other what we were supposed to have learned and you know, prepare for the test. But yeah. yeah, I don't, I don't think, you know, shaming somebody in front of mm -hmm. everybody like that is mm -hmm. useful. You mm -hmm. know, I mean, the teaching moment is there, but calling one student out is, yeah. not, is not helpful. No, not at all. No, it doesn't. And, well, and yeah. it doesn't, even for the other students, I don't think it helps them feel comfortable in asking questions or taking risks, you know? Exactly. So, Exactly. Yeah, all of that. I'm so on board with you. And yeah, it, that is such a win when somebody says like, I enjoyed this class, you know, mm -hmm. because they're even if let's say, uh, you know, the, the goal of the class is yet yeah, to learn math, but they're learning other things, right? They're learning mm -hmm. human interaction, they're learning humanity. I feel like that is mm -hmm. a way more important lesson than anything else, you know, and um, in my field, like, or in my area of study, which is part of like arts and humanities studies, um, like, I, I don't know, right now, like, I'm in the job market for academia, and like, I'm writing all these like, teaching statements and all this blah, 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 all this shit. And I always write, like, I feel like college is a place where students learn how to become human you know, and how to recognize humanity in others. That's why we teach arts and humanities. It's not just arts. It's also the humanities part. It's learn. It's learning and teaching how to be better humans. So, yeah, I think that's important to keep in mind. Yeah. And sometimes we forget that, right? Because we, again, we have the task. We have the goal. <laughs> well, and I like what you said, teaching humanity, because yeah. people would always ask, like, oh, what do you teach? And, and the the teacher response was always like, I teach students, you know, mm -hmm. like, it's mm -hmm. not about a subject or content, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, I, I taught mm -hmm. math to students, but it was like, you're teaching people, yeah. and they should be central to what you're doing and not so concerned about like, yeah, testing it and stuff. But then, you know, state guidelines, federal guidelines, you always do have to teach to a test because, mm -hmm. you know, right. there's those things too. So because yeah. the world is fucked up. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Yes, it is. It, it is. And I don't know when or if that's changing, but we still try to unfuck it as much as possible. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, we try. We try by bringing our own utensils and bowls to the events. And <laughs> we we try by saying, my name is Grace. I, mm -hmm. you know, my pronouns are she, her, hers. Right. Mm -hmm. Like we, that's those are the ways that we try. Mm -hmm. And um uh, I like okay so I I remember going to your reading in LA it was over in Santa Monica I believe and uh, I remember getting your book mm -hmm. right not my white savior yes. and uh, we talked about this briefly uh, 
you know, and I asked you like how you came up with this title. Not my <laughs> white savior. <laughs> right? I mean, come on, right? Did I tell you the story behind the title? Because it's not the original title. I that, that I know. I, I I from my if my memory serves me correct, it came about with you and your agent having a discussion, right? Well, do you remember what the original title was? I actually don't. What was the original title? So the original title is one of the poem titles, mm -hmm. Fuck You, White Barbie. Mm, that okay. was the original title. Right. Um, when my publisher, Rare Bird, said, hey, we're interested, let's talk. Right. You know, let's pull together a contract. And so I was like, mm. great. And, um, and that title, actually, that poem, when I workshopped it um, with my class, the title of the poem was like Korean Barbie, you know? Hmm. And so after I was done workshopping the poem, the, my classmates and the instructor were like, I think you need a much stronger title, like mm. something like fuck you white Barbie. Everybody was crossing out the title Korean Barbie and writing mm -hmm. fuck you white Barbie across the top. And so mm -hmm. that was how that title for the poem came and the title for the book. And, you know, my publisher was just like, we really like that. And yeah. then I was like, okay, well, are there any, you know, legal reasons to not use this because, you know, mm. there's copyright and trademark and stuff. So right. I, thankfully, I talked to an attorney and they mm -hmm. said, you know, you can do this, but it's a risk and they could send you a cease and desist letter, mm -hmm. you know, just think about what you really want to do. And so mm -hmm. I felt like it was probably, um, better to choose a different title and so that's sure. why i ended up going with not my white savior but even not my white savior like there's no poem called right. not my white savior i don't even know if i use that phrase in a poem yeah. um but i just started going through the titles and just kind of sharing that with friends and stuff and just you know kind of mm -hmm. brainstorming with people and mm -hmm. coming up with like alternative titles yes. and literally i still remember i was getting out of my car to go to an open mic and for some reason, like not my white savior, kind of came out of all of those brainstorming mm -hmm. um, discussions with folks, and it just kind of stuck. And mm -hmm. I, you know, it's interesting because like the whole white savior mentality yeah. um, is very much present in adoption, whether it's mm -hmm. transracial, intercountry, same race, whatever, mm -hmm. um, and just white saviorism in general, even outside yeah. of adoption is, oh, yeah. you know, a very real thing. I think especially that we probably talked about a lot in the last yeah. year with the racial reckoning the country is trying to have. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think <clears throat> one of the things, and it's in the poem for my mother that I was told when I was growing up, <clears throat> excuse me, was that if I hadn't been adopted, I would have been either dead or living a life of prostitution on the streets of Korea, you know, and it's like, you know, I learned as an adult that from another adoptee who worked at Holt, the agency that I was adopted through, that that is actually some of the rhetoric that Holt will tell, oh the God. agencies will tell the adoptive parents, the prospective adoptive parents, these things to kind of encourage them to adopt. Like, if you don't do this, you know, then and kind of almost that guilt mentality too which i think is just kind of bs yeah. so <laughs> yeah. you know it's like well wouldn't there have been 
you know, or, you know, people say, well, if you hadn't been adopted, you would have grown up in an orphanage. It's like, well, wouldn't there have also been the, the option for just my family to have stayed together? Mm -hmm. You know, like, why, why wasn't that an option? And we don't, mm -hmm. you know, some of us don't know, but that should be an option and that should be mm -hmm. the priority, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. So it doesn't have to be one or the other. There could be many, you know, possibilities, mm -hmm. but, you know, like to tell somebody, you know, if we hadn't done this, Mm -hmm. We would have been this. Like, how do you know? That's so hypothetical. Oh, yeah. And it's also, you know, I think it's very, um, I don't know if it's shaming to the adoptee or just it's it. I think it kind of for me, it shut down any option to feel any other way but grateful. And so exactly. then when you do feel these other ways, in addition to gratefulness, Right. What do you do with that when you feel like those emotions are wrong? Yeah. But I also don't believe that there's any such thing as a wrong emotion. Oh, like you yeah. can't you can't help how you feel, but you yes. can you can choose how to, you know, behave and respond in in those emotions. But right. I just remember thinking like that's not okay to tell somebody they can't be sad or angry. You know, I mean, if someone. Yeah you love passes away you don't tell them oh don't be sad get over it. i mean that's not right that doesn't help so um it doesn't no yeah i i remember i i do remember reading that poem the one you know it was for all three of your mothers right mm -hmm. it was for your original mother it was for your foster mother and then your adopted mother mm -hmm. and uh, I remember that particular those particular lines when she names the other potential options in the alternate reality like these would have been your only other options and I remember you writing back like um, those are options here in America too for me yeah like yeah. I could just <laughs> as easily become a prostitute or you know live on the streets I mean those are options anywhere you know mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I just like, I loved that particular power, right? Like, cause mm -hmm. that is the voice of resistance. That is your agency stepping in. That's your assertion. That is corrective history as well, mm -hmm. right? Lived mm -hmm. experience as history. And, you know, it's like impossible. It was impossible for me to read this without feeling, um, just so emotional throughout you know, because it's very raw. Mm -hmm. It's extremely like just, you know, just like right there, like just, you know, like as if my skin had just been peeled off and like I just have my whatever bare bareness right underneath and I'm just, I feel so vulnerable to, you know, everything around me. But, you know, I, I thought it was encapsulated so beautifully and um, I feel like these kinds of books that have this, um, this uh, refrain of activism embedded in there, I think that is immensely useful for other adoptees, right? Mm -hmm. um, of course, it's also a choice for adoptees. It's part of their agency for them to decide to go and pursue the search for their original family or mm -hmm. to, you know, just stay here and live with their adoptive family and never bring that stuff up or, you know, whatever. It's all a choice, but... Um, you know, in your choice, in your choosing, you chose a book of poems that magnify your voice. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's like, I don't think people fully understand um, that feeling of helplessness when you're a child, right? And you're living, if, 
in essentially what feels like a stranger's house, a stranger's mm -hmm. home, mm -hmm. and they keep continue to gaslight you, right? I mean, mm -hmm. that's a form of gaslighting to say that mm -hmm. you have no other option but gratitude. I right. mean, my God. I mean, that that is understandable for any marginalized identity, right? Women mm -hmm. definitely mm -hmm. understand that, right? Right, it's like, right. Yeah. You, know, you should be so... You should be so grateful that we let you work here, young lady. How dare yeah. you complain yeah. about your salary? What the fuck are you talking about? You're getting paid less than men. Shut up, right? Exactly. Yeah. And even most recently with the, you know, the anti-Asian hate crimes. Mm -hmm. And there is this mainstream white supremacist. Um, it's not spoken. It's not said directly, but we all feel it us yep. you we asian americans being told to go stand at the back of the line because mm -hmm. the the slavery stuff is priority right it's like no black people's issues are priority asians so you have nothing to complain about you model minorities go stand on the back of the line how dare you speak up i mean that wasn't said per se but i felt it all my asian american mm -hmm. friends felt it but that mentality to say that there is a hierarchy or priority when it comes to specific categories of racialized groups in America, that is them gaslighting us to say, be quiet, this and that. When what we should be saying is all of us, whenever we stand for Black Lives Matter, when we stand for Stop Asian Hate and Stop AAPI Hate, we're all standing for the same thing, which is we're standing up against white supremacy. Mm -hmm. Why don't white people understand that these movements are about them? Mm -hmm. They keep thinking it's about us mm -hmm. making it about us when we're making it about them. And right. that's the disconnect that drives me insane. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, I, yeah, I hear what you're saying and have, have, um, you know, had a range of thoughts and emotions over the last year and, at the same mm -hmm. time, you know, I do want to recognize that like the only people in this country who have ever been, qual I don't know the right way to say this, but who have been considered less than a full person mm -hmm. are black people. Mm -hmm. um, a few years ago, I guess I can attribute this to my then employer eliminating mm -hmm. my job. I had some time to, you know, travel. So I went to New Orleans and I went to... Um, the Whitney Plantation, which right. I, at the time was the only, I don't know if it still is, it's the only plantation to actually tell the story um, of slavery from the perspective of enslaved people and, mm -hmm. the, you know, having invested, um, you know, a lot of resources into preserving the history and telling the history. Mm -hmm. um, and I found it just, I was like, wow, this is the education that you know, I feel like I'm constantly when we're talking about teaching, I feel like I'm constantly having to teach myself the real history of this country because yeah. we didn't get it in high school or college. Right. And so I felt like that experience. Um, yeah, I learned so much. I would go back again and just, you know, really trying to understand like what it was like on the day to day. Yeah. And then also to see what, you know, what ha what his like when you're talking about like you said corrective history you know and just preserving history and accurate history because mm -hmm. you know our history classes are you know if they're leaving certain things out yeah they're not you know you're they, they're not accurate they're inaccurate not to say what they're sharing is inaccurate but if you're leaving pieces mm -hmm. out then well the whole 
of it is in that mm-hmm. book. Like I never learned about um, the Japanese internment camps. I never learned about that. It's ridiculous. Yeah. I remember when I was teaching and somebody was talking about the movie Snow Falling on Cedars. Yeah. And they said, oh, it's about the internment camps. And I was like, what in the heck is this? So that's mm. how I learned. Thank I mean, God. great, Hollywood. <laughs> you know? Right. So, um, I mean, I guess, the, you know, those are other documentations of, you know, a lot of that goes overlooked yeah yeah and i I completely agree with you that uh black bodies were the bodies that were um dislocated and then Mm -hmm. forced into slavery um through white through white people right Mm -hmm. um and because of that history because of the enslavement of black bodies in america because that was the foundation of America, um, Mm -hmm. any person of color in America became like, it was just like, oh, like they're just, just as, they could just as easily be dehumanized, right? Right. Because they had that precedent. Yes. Yes. And Native Americans and indigenous, Mm -hmm. you know, Mexicans, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's like, that's another thing that Americans don't fucking realize. America committed three genocides. Right. It was the Native Americans and then black bodies and Mexicans like Mm -hmm. we wouldn't have Texas. We wouldn't have California. We wouldn't have. I mean, this whole notion of the frontier. Right. Like when Mm -hmm. people use this term frontier and they think it's like a great term, it's a powerful term. Do you know where the word fucking frontier comes from? It comes from colonization. It comes from taking land that doesn't belong to you. It comes from killing people who belonged there whose land that belonged to um so yeah like americans you're right that we're we're very how do i say our educational system does let us down let us all down it's a huge problem even in in college and uh you know i'm i'm teaching undergraduate students and i integrate so much from my day-to-day lived life you know things that i pick up just from attending an event things that i pick up from you know talking to people like you people Mm -hmm. just around me who are activists you know that it's like those kinds of things get integrated just by choice because i know that my textbooks the textbooks that we have that are you know at our disposal are just not enough Mm -hmm. yeah and um yeah like again even the word instead of saying um uh riot saying rebellion or uprising i mean that's something Mm -hmm. i learned as a graduate student Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. so yeah i mean our our fucking educators really our educational institutions really need to reprioritize some things yeah Mm -hmm. absolutely for sure yeah well and even just i think in the wake of the the shootings in atlanta and just you know well is it a hate crime or is it not it's like my initial response was if it feels like a hate crime it's a hate crime Mm. and just all the education that people were doing around asian american history because a lot of people don't think that we've ever experienced any Mm -hmm. you know problems and that's why we don't experience racism or whatever and don't even know who vincent chin was um but i think you know like for myself i never got to take asian american studies in college or graduate school or ethnic studies that it wasn't you know the schools I went to didn't have those opportunities um and so again I've taught myself a lot of those things but I think you know if people don't understand the history and even 
you know, people think, let's, let's go back to the whole adoption theme again, is that yeah. I think there are definitely white families who have adopted children of color who think that because they adopted a child of color that they can't be racist. And it's like, yep. well, actually, yep. I was a target of racism in mm-hmm. my own family. My parents, mm-hmm. you know, aren't, you know, I, I, I can't, I mean, everybody's got their own biases, right? right. No matter what your background is. Yes, always. And so um, I think that, you know, for someone to say like, well, I can't be racist because I adopted this child of color. It's like, well, right. you've got definitely some racial bot blind spots. Yes. Um, I've been watching This Is Us quite a bit lately. <laughs> and, <laughs> and you know, it's like some of it really resonates with me, some of it not as much. But I think it's really interesting how they have woven in the whole identity of, um, what's his name, Randall, as a transracial adoptee, as a black man, mm-hmm. especially in this time and making things very relevant and... Um, like yeah he's what in that in the show he's probably i guess in his 40s and Mm -hmm. because he hasn't talked about some of these things in the past it's you know it's like he's dealing with the trauma now and if you don't talk about it it'll come out in very ugly ways so yeah um yeah a little bit of a tangent there but yes i have been watching that show quite a bit lately it's just it's really interesting yeah it does come out it comes out eventually you know like Mm -hmm. I look at right now, I'm looking at Mia Farrow and, you know, I'm just always shaking my head because when it comes to Mia Farrow and the whole Sunni Previn stuff, I'm just like, I'm not team Mia Farrow nor team Woody Allen. I am team Sunni Previn. All right. I am team Sunni Previn all the fucking way. I don't care about Mia Farrow. I don't care about Woody Allen. I care about Sunni Previn and what she did as a grown woman to go and get agency because she grew up in an abusive family. She grew up with a woman who was a child collector. And, you know, like the way that the Pharaoh empire, Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's a fucking empire. Like Ronan Pharaoh is a very powerful journalist and he has a lot of stakes at HBO. That's why they have that fucking um, docu-series, right? And it's like, why is Mia Farrow and the Pharaohs like, why are they so hell-bent on incriminating Woody Allen right now? And I was just like, is it to hide something? (laughs) Is it to make a louder noise to distract from the fact that she made some big fuck-ups when it came to adopting children from other countries that are non-white? And I would say yes! You know, like, Mm -hmm. Mia Farrow's... um, uh, Asian American son, right? Um, he wrote, he, I mean, he wrote it on like block spot, you know, it's like not at all. It doesn't have the power of the Ronan Farrow mm. platform. Mm-hmm. Um, but he wrote it. He said that, you know, he looked up to his older sister, Suni and, um, that Suni suffered a lot at the hands of Mia Farrow, who was abusive mm. And that nobody in their family could ever speak up against Mia because she would make their lives a living hell. So these adopted children lived in fear. Mm -hmm. They had no control. They had no say. Anything Mia Farrow said, that was the go. Okay? And it's unfortunate. It's horrifying that a child like Dylan Farrow is in the middle of 
basically a, like a, a fight between, you know, like Mia Farrow and Woody Allen, essentially. Not only is Dylan Farrow a victim, but I would say Suni Previn is also a victim. She was a victim of the media at the time. She was a victim of racism. You know, so I am Team Suni Previn all the way to the day I die. I want to get her face tattooed on my arm. That's how much I am Team Suni Previn. Like I don't care about Mia Farrow. I don't care about Woody Allen. I don't care. I do have a lot of pain, like empathetic pain for Dylan Farrow, and I have a lot of empathetic pain for Suni Previn. So that's my position on that. Well, and the the interesting thing is too is that that is probably not, well, it's not an isolated incident, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, I like what you said, too, about child collector, because there are plenty of child collectors, whether they're celebrities or not. Yeah, everywhere. Um, but also just how many adopted children have died in their own homes or at the mm. hands of their adopters. And, you know, it's, I don't know when it will end, maybe when adoption ends. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but a poet friend of mine, I'm going to, I want to talk about their book. I haven't seen, I've seen a few of the poems from it, but, um, and, and, and MJ is not, um, not an adoptee. So I'm really, really curious to read the whole mm-hmm. book when it comes out. But um, their working manuscript is called Bluff, B-L-U-F-F. Mm-hmm. Um, this is what they they um, wrote on Twitter. Bluff is my working manuscript about the Hart family murder suicide and the events leading up to it. Persona and documentary poetics. I can't wait to spend the next year working on this one. Um, and I've read, you know, like I said, a few of the poems that they've had published. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm very, I know I'm going to read this book and buy it, but yeah. also it's just intriguing to me to have a person who is not adopted. Yeah. write about this experience especially yeah. in um at, in persona poems as part yes. of the the manuscript because i feel like those are um persona poems can be they can go so many different ways but i think they can mm-hmm. also for myself at least they can they can be kind of traumatizing oh yeah you know? and so i think it'll be really interesting to to read the final um Manuscripts. So anyway, if anybody is interested, um, Michael and J. Jones uh, on, on social media. And again, the, I don't know when the book will come out, but the, mm-hmm. the manuscript bluff is in process. And um, yeah. yeah, I mean, I know other other, you know, folks who have written about, um, you know, the Hart family who, who aren't adopted because it hit other nerves, you know, and, oh and, and, and the two poets, you know, MJ and then this other poet I'm thinking of, you know, they're both black. So I think it, yeah, because there's that identity, it, it doesn't matter if you're adopted or not. Like you still feel this, you know, there's something there that resonates that, that yeah. calls a poet to, you know, voice something about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, yes. I, I think, I think the manuscript, I think the book will be something that I will probably prepare myself emotionally and psychologically to read. Oh my it, won't God, be, yeah. it won't be one of those books that I just sit down and want to read, yeah. you know, yeah. in a, with a in cup of coffee, but, but who knows, maybe it will be, cause I know it will be very good. Um, sure. yeah. but yeah, yeah, I mean that, that situation that those children died, like right. Um, I think it was 2018, spring mm-hmm. of 2018. 
Yeah. And, um, you know, it was again, horrible. That, that, that event was so horrible. Yeah. And again, you know, people think that, you know, adoption is just this great thing. And that, well, that was just one case. It's like, well, actually, there have no, been many cases. There's so many cases. There have been there's many so cases. Many. Yeah. And some of them are probably just not reported. In they the go news, underreported. You know? Yes. So. Because um, of a sense of shame, you know, mm-hmm. like, because um, sexual abuse is huge. You know, when it comes mm-hmm. to adoptees and, and children, like so many of them, you know, like so many stories of sexual abuse are there and people mm-hmm. just overlook it. And then people, I mean, that's also another line in your book saying, well, all said and done, they should still be grateful, right? Mm-hmm. Like they should mm-hmm. still be grateful for the life that was given to them. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, man. A lot of kids can just do without sexual trauma and racialized trauma and mm-hmm. just general abuse. They could just do without that stuff, really. I think everyone. And yeah. I think, you know, just as an analogy, I mean, you know, like, yes, being told, like, well, just be grateful. And especially, you know, when you're not, when you're being told that by somebody who's in a position of power and mm-hmm. leaving is very hard. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would just, if, you know, I would use as an analogy, just, you know, like employment, you know, um, just because you have a job, if you're not being respected and treated, right. you know, fairly and consistently with other employees, then why? Then it that is also an abusive situation. And yes. but again, it's hard to leave because you got to pay rent, you got to buy a grocery. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like in the longer, if, you know. So anyway, I, I just I think about that as an analogy. It's like yeah. nobody wants to stay in a bad job, but sometimes sure. we do. We, yeah. It takes longer to get out than maybe you want. Yeah. But, you know, it's I, you know, if you're in an abusive situation in yeah. your home, yeah. you know, leaving, especially if you are the child, leaving right. is got to be horrifying and terrifying. Yeah. And even telling somebody who can do something about it is, right. you know, because even as an employee, you go back to the employee situation, how many people will actually say something and speak up at work if something isn't right because people are afraid of retaliation, you know? Exactly. I've, you know, I've spent part of my time in HR and somebody um, shared something with me and I said, you know, I really think I need to take this to, to somebody else and bring it mm-hmm. forward, but would you be okay with that? And they mm-hmm. said, well, can you guarantee that I won't get fired, mm. you know? And I want that assurance that I'm not going to be fired. I won't be, you know, you know, I won't experience backlash. And so when I uh, when I talked to this other these other individuals about, them, I said, you know, I think you know something needs to be done. I made them. This is all, of course, on Zoom. I said, you know, they're concerned. I said, I'm not going to share their name with you until you know we have this discussion about like that they won't get fired. And, mm-hmm. and that you know, and they were doing exactly what you're doing right now. They're just like shaking their head and agreeing with me. I said, no. Right. Can you tell me? I want to hear. I want right. to witness you saying Give they will not yes. get fired. Yeah. You know, and so they they the, oh okay. So they said no, they will not get fired. It's like yeah, I'm not mm-hmm. gonna you know out this person until you know I can have that assurance because I promised them that. It's like and it's, part it's of real. That. Yeah. You know, it's worrying about your career. It's structural. Yeah, exactly. It's exactly. systemically and structurally built against us so that we can't speak up. You know, and right. that is a great analogy, actually. Yeah. And like I've been child. thinking about yeah. just hierarchy in general a lot because I know a lot of, um, you know, some people, they don't like, you know, how, you know, hierarchy and power, like how you flatten organizations and, right. and not necessarily 
take that power away, but she, you know, maybe spread it around so that sure. there isn't mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. that structure, that power structure. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So I've, I've been thinking about that a lot lately. I don't know how it works, like in the workplace, but it has to be possible somehow. <laughs> there are examples of that, you know. Mm-hmm. I watched that uh, magic Dr. Bronner's Magic Soapbox documentary. Have you seen that film? No, I haven't. It's a lovely film. I mean, you you know of the soap, I'm sure, though, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I love this soap. So many people love this soap. It's a hippie mm-hmm. soap. Uh, but they have this policy where the CEO doesn't make more than 40 times what the lowest paid employee at their company makes. Oh, wow. And oh. everything in excess of that goes to charities. Yeah. Do you know who? Um, so this makes me think of Dan Price. Mm-hmm. He's a CEO of Grabby Payments in Seattle. So I follow him on social media because he, yeah, yeah I mean, he lowered his salary yes. so that everybody in the company could yes. make at least $70,000 yes. a year. $75,000. It's not even that much, but it makes a huge fucking difference. Right. It makes and, a livable difference. Yeah. And even just the things he says on, on like, LinkedIn and other social media platforms, just that, you know, how, you know, if you leave an employer and they are like, oh my gosh, you know, we're, you're leaving us high and dry. It's like, no, you, they should have like created a plan so that they were ready for people to move on, you know, and that it's not your responsibility to, to take care of all those things. Of course you want there to be a smooth transition and you Mm. leave on a professional and good note, but you know, that's not your problem. You don't have to, you know, take care of all of that. If they didn't, you know, if you gave them ample warning and they didn't, you know, listen and and create a contingency plan. Um, And yeah, I just like a lot of the things that he says about like trying to create some equality in the workplace and, and just, you know, respect for, all employees no matter what their level is exactly yeah he's like one of those like woke white boys who like went and did ayahuasca somewhere and came back enlightened and he's like okay this is what i need to do you know and it's like yeah go you you do whatever it is that you need to do in order to become a better person right Mm -hmm. i mean sometimes a lot of the times usually the reason why people act like assholes is because they have a chip on their shoulders because they're sad their needs were not met they're Mm -hmm. they've been abused or traumatized or suffered something horrible and they're going to go out and be a blatant asshole. Like if you look at these very vocal, radicalized right-wing people who happen to be of working class or lower middle class or middle class, what I hear when they're being very vocally and actively racist or hateful, what I hear is their own, like somebody who abused them, like somebody who lashed out on them and said why are you being such an ignorant hick you know that's like what ignorant hicks say to say like you know this kind of misogynistic thing or this kind of race racist thing when they were not in any way intending to be that particular category right and this is where um the debate around intention for me becomes complicated because like up until very recently, I used to believe that intention did not matter, right? I used to really genuinely believe that. You know, I used to say like, you know, when somebody like made a mistake and like they said something that was like hateful towards, you know, one of my identities, I would be like, man, that is fucked up. You know, you're so ignorant. 
you know, and they're like, oh, I'm sorry, that wasn't my intention. I was like, your intention does not matter. It's like, let's say you're backing out of a, a driveway and you hit somebody. You didn't intend to hit somebody, but you still hit them. Did you not? And they're like, oh, my God, I'm so fucking sorry. But it's like, <laughs> that's not that's not the way. That's not the progressive way at all. That's not the humane way. Intention does matter. It does matter. And then we have to be very, very, like, alert and mindful and see what is happening from from many different perspectives. Okay, yeah, what this person said might have caused me injury. So out of my injury, I may be reacting out of my ego because the ego is there to defend me. It's my protector. And I, I lash out and say, you racist piece of shit. I could say that or I could say... Oh, okay. Um, you probably didn't mean to, but I felt a little hurt when you used the word, um, I don't know, like oriental <laughs> just now mm -hmm. to describe me. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's not because, you know, of anything. It's not because you intended it. I don't think you intended to hurt me because we're friends or we know each other. It's just that that term is now um, tainted with mm -hmm. very negative connotations and it's just not the i mean as as fucking walter says in the big lebowski you know like it's not the preferred nomenclature right mm -hmm. like asian american please right mm -hmm. like um so yeah that becomes a teaching moment right but not mm -hmm. even i don't even want to say teaching moment because you just mentioned hierarchy like i am not above anybody because mm -hmm. i learned something i'm right. not we are all equals i just happen to have had the the resources and the time and the privilege to have access to these institutions and get the degree and get the knowledge mm -hmm. this person and i are we're still people right um i need to acknowledge this person's intention and then i need to approach them in a way that does not make them feel defensive and hurt right because two wrongs don't make a right right mm -hmm. this person made a mistake let's just learn it and understand it as a mistake and recognize it as a mistake and then just speak from speak my truth from my heart and say oh that was a little bit hurtful i don't think you meant it but this is what i prefer you know and let's say you have that communication right mm -hmm. i really doubt that a person who is a human being who who has good intention who is genuinely good i doubt that that person is going to go around using that word oriental again you know in a hateful way i really doubt it the only way for them to use that word in a hateful way with intention to hurt others will be if I lashed out on at them and said, mm -hmm. you racist piece of shit. You're so fucking stupid. Nobody uses the word Oriental. What are you from the 1950s? You're a moron. Mm -hmm. da, 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 da. Mm -hmm. That will definitely send them flailing over to the other side. Right. Find others who make them feel understood and make them feel better who will go and comfort them and say, you know, what? you didn't do anything wrong. Right, that bitch right. is fucking crazy. That stupid <laughs> gook, you know? And it, and that's how it happens. That is mm -hmm. what's been happening. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Like, I, I think we on the left really need to um, be mindful of that, right? And and I love mm -hmm. what what you say about this, like, this breaking down of hierarchy. You know, there's, like, one example that I could think of is it's in a Korean drama, actually, that I really like. Of course uh, it's, it's in called, a Korean drama. It, it, I learned so much from K-dramas. <laughs> I mean, my God, it's like changing me all the time. But it's called Search WWW. A woman wrote it. And uh, there's this startup company where their whole like company culture is to address one another in formal terms. So oh. they don't use informal speech. They only, everybody, it doesn't matter 
what your rank is, everybody addresses one another in formal speech. Mm-hmm. And uh, they don't even have titles necessarily, right? Mm-hmm. I think that's important to not give titles. You're not a VP. You're not an executive. You're not a blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. You know, you just have a name. Mm-hmm. And everybody at the company, they all um, have English names, like anglicized names. And that's, sure. a, again, it gets a little dicey there. Mm-hmm. Because like, why are you anglicizing your Korean names? But the reason why they do it is because in Korea, culturally, it's very rude to address one another by their names. If you don't know them, if they're older than you, you know, the, 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 there is Confucian system, systematized structural cultural uh, things there. So they mm-hmm. use the English name because it becomes easier to uh, like call them by their names if it's an anglicized name. So they all adopt anglicized names mm-hmm. at the company. And so um, th- those were some methods that I saw in a TV show. <laughs> it was an imagined scenario. Maybe it's based on some realities that we live in. But I was just like, this kind of stuff is happening. It's happening with younger people. And it's com- it's happening with people who are trying to do better and, mm-hmm. and to not repeat the same mistakes that corporations have been doing. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I, I see hope in that. Yeah. Interesting. Mm. Yeah. Um, okay, so your book. Do you have another mm-hmm. book coming out? Oh, gosh. Well, <laughs> you know, that is always the recurring question that people ask. And so... Well, this must have been a hard... Well, let me ask you. How long did it take for you to come up with this collection? I tell people 15 years because mm-hmm. partly I never planned to write a book. Yeah. Um, I just, you know, I started hearing poets like Balfi, Ed Buckley, and mm-hmm. Eddie Lally. You know, I was born with two tongues. I started hearing them and mm-hmm. thinking, wow, this really resonates with me. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like people who look like me who were not all necessarily adopted right. um, but that were saying you know things that I felt but mm-hmm. I didn't know them you know mm-hmm. and so I just you know casually started taking a couple of writing workshops nothing serious just like oh there's a community writing workshop might be kind right. of interesting right. um, but I never really yeah I didn't set out to be a poet or to be you know an author um, sure. I didn't even start calling myself a poet until, well, I guess once I, once I was going to write a book, then I had to, you know, there was no kind of going back there. But um, I just, I remember um, when I moved from Minnesota to California, I just felt like there was something, something that was going to be an avenue for me to change the world in a way that... I hadn't discovered yet. And I didn't know what that was. I had no idea what that was. And the first year I was in LA, I went to this social event and, you know, it's, it's, it was social. It was networking, you know, people were you know, giving out their business cards and stuff. And I remember this one person and I, hopefully I will find their business card again somewhere. Who knows where it is now, but they were a palm reader or as she liked to say, a hand analyst. <laughs> And she must have asked me to say something about myself because then she looks at my hand and she's like, oh, you are going to be published. And I just wow. was like, oh, ha, ha, ha. And I walked away and I thought, like, oh, she's not anything. Right. But then there was always this kind of tug in the back of my mind. Of like, okay, well, maybe something's going to happen. I don't know. Yeah. And then I went to a seminar one week and I just, you know, I was like, you know what, I'm going to write a book. And I didn't even know, I had no idea 
what the topic would be, what the genre would be. I, you know, I was not, I just was like, I'm going to write a book and I don't know what it's going to be about. Mm. So here we are with the, mm-hmm. with the book and, you know, people do ask like, you know, what are you, you know, what are your plans you know, yeah. going forward? And so mm. I do think that I will write another book. At mm. one point I thought it would come out five years after, you know, not my white savior, okay. but that's yeah. less than two years away. And sure. <laughs> So let's just say if anybody's thinking like, okay, no, it probably will not be out. And, you know, there probably will be more than five years between the two mm. books, which is fine. You know, um, it is. yeah, I mean, I think one of the things, yeah, one of the things that I didn't really tackle in Not My White Savior as much as I think that I would like to is spiritual mm. abuse. Um, oh. There are just other pieces that I didn't write that I think because I, they were so traumatizing, I just didn't even, it wasn't even on my radar. Like I kind of at one point had kind of made this mental list of like, here's different topics I want to make sure are covered in the book. Sure. And there were some things that I just, I was so traumatized by that I didn't even write about them. But I think the spiritual abuse piece can happen to anyone, whether you're adopted or not. But I think the intersection of it with adoption is is unique you know just the whole narrative like if we hadn't you know we're the white saviors um but just also spiritual abuse in general that you know being told like well i can tell you haven't read your bible lately it's like really (laughs) how do you know how do you know (laughs) yeah i mean isn't it isn't it a crime i mean isn't it a crying shame that spirituality is used as a weapon Mm -hmm. when it comes to white christianity unfortunately you know mm-hmm. well and it's so sad there was a movie that came out several years ago i believe it was like 2003 or 2004 called saved mm-hmm. it's probably more like a b movie um mm-hmm. macaulay culkin is in it he's nice also and i knew it was about like the church and stuff but i didn't know quite exactly what it was and so i went to see it with a friend and the mm-hmm. setting for the film is in a Christian school. Well, I went to a Mm. Christian school, so I was like, oh my gosh. You know, I told my friends, I said, you know, if you want to get to know me better, watch this movie because much of this is my experience growing up Mm. in the church, going to Christian schools. And there's Mm. one scene in there in particular that I remember where, you know, there was the, the really kind of like, you know, high on my horse, you know, kind of like up on my pedestal kind of Christian student and then the other one who was you know trying to do all the right things but also kind of open you know maybe more like open-minded mm-hmm. and the one who was a little more judgy like t- literally took the bible and mm-hmm. threw it at the other girl and <laughs> i think the b word was exchanged somewhere in there and then the one who was more open-minded she said it's not a weapon but you're right. People do use like spirituality and scripture, I think, in a very weaponized way, which is sad. And why it's so sad? I don't go to church right now because I I don't need to get up early on a Sunday morning or any. I don't need to, I don't need to leave the house and go somewhere mm-hmm. where I and know I'm going to feel bad. Just be made to feel bad, like you know, where it's not a supportive environment. You know what it reminds me of? It, it reminds me a little bit of like bipolar, I mean, not bipolar, like borderline personality disorder. Because mm. a borderline personality disorder will make the person that they love miserable and do everything 
all of their actions say like oh it's like driving that person away all of their actions are like gonna drive that person away but then they're like you know they'll say verbally like i love you don't leave me you know but it's like but you're actually like you're hitting me you're throwing shit at me you're spitting on me it's a very much a push pull right yeah. yeah Yeah. It's a very confusing, chaotic thing. And the only reason why I think it gets that way, I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with Christianity. Mm-hmm. I think it's because the people get involved and they turn it into a dogma. And yes. then they, you know, try to enforce rigidity, rigid rules onto controlling mm-hmm. people. Like that's mm-hmm. where it gets problematic when spirituality should be about liberation, mm-hmm. feeling mm-hmm. like you know less suffering like less human suffering i mean that is the goal of all spirituality essentially you know mm-hmm. and w- whereas christianity has elements of that when it gets dogmatized it just becomes unbearable mm-hmm. you know i understand this trauma that you have it's part of the reason why i don't go to church anymore either you know mm-hmm. but yeah. i found a lot of comfort in buddhism and mm-hmm. um yeah that's sort of been my thing as part of my yeah. journey these days but yeah, I can't I can't wait to hear, you know, or read your next book. Do you have like a, a writing ritual? No, no. no huh? I, I mean, I know people who, you know, they write every day. They have like this practice mm-hmm. and, you know, I've taken several um, virtual workshops over the last year, with, nice. which I think had the pandemic not happened, I wouldn't have been able to you know, learn from some of the people that I have had that opportunity. So that is definitely Mm. a plus, but I don't have a practice. I keep telling myself I'm going to create one, but it hasn't happened. (laughs) You know, I think sometimes I write Mm. when, you know, there's a lot inside and that's Mm -hmm. my outlet. Mm -hmm. Um, But I get that question a lot and Mm -hmm. I don't know. I don't, you know, I know some very talented writers that will also tell me, like, yeah, I don't write every day. I read every day. I mm-hmm. definitely read every day. And yeah. reading something on paper, I think, is important, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. Bosia, you know, another poet, he, um, he he has encouraged me to, like, read, read something on paper. Because we're on the screen so much, mm-hmm. you know, and then reading something on paper. Like, I think, you know... Ebooks are interesting. I've never mm-hmm. had an e-reader, and I don't mm-hmm. know that. You know, I just I think that a lot of people just like the idea of holding a book in your hand. You know, the physical, mm-hmm. actual paper book. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, I think reading things on paper is still very important. I think it's lovely. Yeah, it's like it's nice to have something tangible in your hand, and then mm-hmm. flip the pages and just kind of like yeah engage with the book you know it's like mm-hmm. a, this physical connection that you can have with the book i think that's important for sure but yeah um i love what you say about reading every day you know mm-hmm. i like i think people forget that it's impossible to be a writer if you do not read you mm-hmm. know it's like it comes hand in hand you mm-hmm. gotta read if you want to write like mm-hmm. you can't just fucking go to a cafe somewhere and smoke a cigarette and just write a, a fucking masterpiece it doesn't work that way and right. writing is also like i love the fact that you do workshops writing is not a solitary mm-hmm. act that's another right. bs concept like mm-hmm. it, it's no no writers have to interact socially writers mm-hmm. always talk to other writers and ask and you know like workshop process is so important Going to open mics as a poet, that's so mm-hmm. important. You know, mm-hmm. I do that in comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, 
all of this is always a collective effort, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Exactly. I, I love that you highlight those things. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I miss, I miss, I think, I mean, I know there's plenty of, you know, virtual open mics and I've had, you know, a few virtual readings in the last year. Mm -hmm. But I think one of the things that I've, I've said to other people and they would agree, one of the things I miss the most about um, going to a bookstore or a venue for a reading it's, I mean, of course, the poetry and what you hear is so important, but it's all the other things that are in yes. that environment, meeting yes. new people or randomly mm. running into poets that you yeah. usually only see at those readings or just yeah. finding that random bar to hang out at afterwards. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, because to me, those are such um, important parts of, yeah. you know, learning from others. And, yeah. and I just, yeah, I really miss those pieces and I don't know when we're going to get that back yeah <laughs> soon no, hopefully I don't know it's it's coming back it's slowly coming back you know um yeah that's like it's like the the reading is just the hearth right or the right. location is the hearth right. and it's like yeah you're so right it is about like the whole human interaction and the social interaction like that's what it's about that's what gives us life that's what gives mm -hmm. us energy mm -hmm. and rejuvenation and um, and a sense of community when we go to those spaces and then we see the people that we know and we get to like just exchange a few words and you know check in with one another like that's huge that was a huge part of like my day-to-day -to -day too you know and yeah to have that take you know it sucks but mm -hmm. it's coming back slowly and um, good so I have one final question and we'll wrap sure. up but um, when you go to these open mics as a poet and you read like what is it that you're looking for like are you looking for a reaction are you are you just trying to read it out loud so you could kind of hear the music of the rhythm and sound it out is that the point like what are some of the goals that you have or some of the benefits of an open mic reading as a poet I think there's a couple of things for me and this kind of changes over time and I mm -hmm. honestly I don't think I've done like the open mics that I've read at in the last years when I was asked to you know, be one of the you know readers and so mm -hmm. I think an open mic that's virtual where you, you actually have to sign up mm -hmm. um, that's a little bit different so I haven't done that as much mm -hmm. um, but I think one is just I did not feel that reading or performing a poem was my strength so I felt like I needed to do it to get comfortable with my voice mm -hmm. um, so that I don't sound just monotone or something, you know? And so I really had to work on that. And I think, you know, I was in choir when I was in high school. And so, like, kind of pulling out some of that as well. But, like, mm. there is a musicality to reading a poem, I think. Yes. Um, so there's there's that. But also, um, I think the actual, the, the open mic where I actually found out about how to write my book um, I'd been taking some writing workshops in, um, in East LA and it was some pretty deep personal stuff. And it's actually the fucky white Barbie came out of those workshops, um, <laughs> at Avenue. 50. And of course it's from East LA. Yeah, yeah. It's from Avenue 50. <laughs> and so I, you know, I went to this open mic once and I was like, okay, it's cool. You know, somebody had invited me. And so then I went again, I was like, you know, I want to. I want to read some of this out loud because I felt like 
you know, writing for me is very therapeutic, but then to read it and share it with an audience who, you know, I don't really care if they like it or not, but if one person would say, hey, that was great, or get some support, you because know, I, I seek out open mic spaces where I know, like, the audience will be supportive no matter what what you do, you know, in mm-hmm. some way, they'll inter- encourage you in some way. And so for right. me, that was part of like, I just want some reassurance that what I'm saying and what I'm writing is, it makes sense. And that it's, mm-hmm. you know, I, I wanted some validation, I think, as mm-hmm. well. Um, mm-hmm. And I honestly don't even remember exactly which piece I read that night. It might have been the one about um, my name. And so, um, yeah, but also sometimes, you know, you go to these open mics, especially in L.A. I don't mm-hmm. haven't experienced it as much here in the Bay Area, but there haven't. I think it's just a different vibe up here, too. But in L.A., mm-hmm. some of those open mics, if you don't get there in time, you do not get on the list. And I lived in Long Beach. So for me to haul from Long Beach up to L.A., mm-hmm. you know, at least 30 to 45 minutes, you know, depending on traffic and then not get on the list, Sucks. you know, yeah. But the thing is, it's like sometimes I would go to open mics and not sign up because, you know, that takes some energy to like, okay, you got to prepare a piece. You got to make sure you don't, you know, go over their time limit. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think sometimes just going to an open mic and supporting other people and hearing what they have to say. And you can be so inspired by so much of what you hear, you know, Mm -hmm. and I think you know, the whole poetry open mic scene is such a, it's such an interesting community, at least mm. the open mics that I've gone to, um, that, I, you know, I think to go only for yourself mm-hmm. is, that's not what I, I want, you know, I want to, you know, go and support others as well. Um, and it's, it's always interesting to, to go because I feel like no matter what, frame of mind I'm in no matter what how I'm participating or attending I always take something away from it I feel like my soul is always fed in some way Mm. um and I take this back to you know some open mics that I went to in Minnesota um and there's one series um at the loft which is a literary center in Minneapolis um Mm. it's called Equilibrium and it always Mm. has featured for more than 10 years now has featured um writers of color now mostly poets and you know I would go because I knew that I would come away feeling better and I just it was almost it was a very spiritual experience for me and it's almost like you know I don't go to church but I go to these poetry readings and that to me is better than church you know um and I think you know somebody will if, if there's something there's always somebody who's writing about the current time you know Mm -hmm. and so if there's there's something happening where I'm like struggling to make sense of it I feel like there will always be somebody who has the courage to write about it in a way that kind of like grounds me Mm -hmm. um to know that I can also try and make sense of the the spectrum of emotions and thoughts that I'm having so Mm -hmm. um I would just say to anybody who's never been to an open mic Mm -hmm. You don't know what you're missing. Go mm-hmm. and try it, and just listen mm-hmm. and and just take it in. You yeah. know. I think that's such an important lesson, you know, for for a lot of people. It's like sometimes when we're stuck in our own bullshit, mm-hmm. um, 
we feel victim to it. Right. And we feel trapped. Mm -hmm. And if we listen to a neighbor or a friend about their problems or their current process of whatever, it's like that you get uplift from that because mm -hmm. you realize you're not alone right. in your suffering. Yeah. Everybody has their baggage and everybody's living through like living through it, getting mm -hmm. through it. That's beautiful. Yeah. And it's like yeah, people forget that being a good listener, taking the time to listen is immensely cathartic and healing for the self. Mm -hmm. You know? I mean, that's a that's a lesson that all comics need to learn because when we go to open mics, girl, we don't listen to anybody. <laughs> We're just like, when do we get our stage time? Huh? We're all waiting. Why is this yep. idiot up here talking about bullshit I don't care about, you know? <laughs> like, we need to listen to one another. We need to be better listeners. And that's definitely been a goal of mine the last few years. I'm, I'm still struggling through. I'm still learning how to do it better. But mm -hmm. um, thank you for that reminder. Yeah, mm -hmm. I really appreciate that. Yeah, no, I mean, I think listening is so powerful. And to be listened to is so powerful. Mm -hmm. um, and shortly after was well, the week of the shootings in Atlanta. And I was like, you know, it's like trying to work every day, but very upset about, you know, mm. what happened, but then also how it was being reported and so on. Mm -hmm. And um, at my job, we had um, a virtual lunch every Friday. And it was very casual, just like drop in if you want. Sometimes there was a topic, sometimes there wasn't. Um, and I was like, I, I want to talk about this. And mm -hmm. I, I feel like we need to talk about it at work. Mm -hmm. And so um, I connected really quick with another um, Asian American employee. And I just said, hey, what do you think about this? If I just put something out on our Slack channel about like, hey, we want to come together and center the voices of Asian American women. You know, what do you think? You know, I said, even if you and I are the only ones that show up, I said, to me, that would be worth it. And they yes. were like, yeah, let's do it. And so I, you know, we actually had, I think about, this again, this is a small company, but a third of the, of the team was there mm -hmm. and it was very well received. Um, and, and again, I just, I just emphasize to folks, you know, showing up and listening to us today is hugely meaningful like you don't have to say anything today because you know like there were folks that showed up that were asian american there were folks that weren't asian american that were there and i just said you know i just appreciate that people showed up you know because mm -hmm. to me that's like your presence mm -hmm. is solidarity mm -hmm. um and obviously there's more than you know physically being in a space and listening but i feel like that is a huge step just knowing that like Oh, people cared what I had to say and people right. like to me that's so validating like oh you think that this is important enough to take time that you you know instead of just eating lunch at your computer you know you, you're gonna tune in and listen to what we have to say mm -hmm. um, and I think you know one of the things that also came through and even now but I mean especially like in that week and, and, and the time after um, you know, it's like seeing the solidarity for like other folks, you know, speaking up as well, not just Asian Americans speaking up, but, um, and what I saw, at least in my timelines and my feed was overwhelmingly seeing black women, like showing up in solidarity and mm -hmm. saying, you know, how, you know, to stand with us. And I just, mm -hmm. it, it wasn't surprising to me, but it was just really beautiful to see that. And I hope that yes. I can, 
you know, be as good of an ally um, yeah. when it comes to, you know, issues for the black community. Um, but I just, yeah. I, I think that, you know, the interesting time that we're in with this country trying to have, and I say trying to have a racial reckoning, because mm-hmm. I don't really know that everybody's really doing it, mm-hmm. you know? But mm-hmm. I mean, when we look at like the murder of George Floyd, the Atlanta mm-hmm. killings, and just all the mass, you know, killings that we're having. Um, and I think it is a time for us to really come together and, and recognize where maybe, you know, you know, as an Asian American, maybe where I haven't and, mm-hmm. and how to correct that. But um, yeah, I mean, I've, I've had to take a step back and, and, and learn and, and continue to, I think it's one of those things where you can't just say like, oh, I'm an ally and then that's it. Like it's a, it's something you have to keep working at. And I think the best definition of an ally, a friend of mine gave me, you know, several years ago is that I can say I'm an ally, but I think the true definition is when the group that I'm trying to support, when they say that I'm an ally, because I'm probably messing things up, (laughs) you know, and even if, you know, a few people from the group say, yes, you're an ally, there might be others that say, no, she's not, because Mm -hmm. what she said and did, you know, so just Mm -hmm. always trying to you know, instead of spending energy calling myself an ally, like, what am I really doing to be anti-racist mm. and to be an advocate? And, right. you know, right. and that would be my question to many of those employers and organizations last summer that came out with their statements of solidarity. It's exactly. like, okay, what have you done since then? Yeah. It's been almost a year. And what have you done since then? You know, right. it's Shows not just, kids. yeah, solidarity is not an event. It's a journey. Mm-hmm. And it's mm-hmm. it's a transformation, you know, mm-hmm. individual, I think, mm-hmm. as well as organizational. Mm-hmm. Well said. Yeah. I couldn't have said it any better. Yeah, I'm. It's not about the title. It's about your actions. Exactly. And it's about yeah, like, you know, how honest are you with yourself? Mm. Yeah, all of those That's things. How honest are you with yourself? And I think also. Mm. You know, I've heard people say, well, I don't know what to do. And it's like, well, at least you're asking that question. And I don't mm-hmm. think that there's any action that's too small. You know, I think that there has to be, you know, it, is, it isn't just we're going to change overnight. You know, it is incremental mm-hmm. change. You know, one employer that I worked at, we actually looked at, I think it was like directors on up. And we looked at the demographics and... It's like, even if we filled every open position with a person of color, it would have taken us like beyond my retirement to reach any sense of balance with the demographics. Otherwise it would still be white dominated. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's like, no, it's, this does not change overnight. One more no, thing no. I want to say no. about the whole, like just in all the discussion, the Asian American you know, community and mm-hmm. everything is that Again, not surprising, but just a re, another cycle of disappointment, I think, is that oftentimes in the dialogue around the Asian American community and our identity is that I often hear people, and I was actually just in a session this week, you know, people saying like, you know, well, our parents and, you know, our grandparents are like this and you know how, and it's like, you're excluding an entire population of transracial 
you know, adopted Asian Americans. And mm -hmm. that I think is a continual um, slight, whether it's intentional or not. But I also feel like at this point, there's no excuse for it, you know, that people need to understand that like when you say things in a certain way, you are excluding people and mm -hmm. you have to, you know, understand that there's a large majority of us, you know, I think, I don't know the exact numbers, but I'm guessing there's at least a quarter of a million transracial Asian adoptees in the US, probably more, um, that we grew up with white parents. And so we don't know what Asian culture and traditions are like. So, yes. you know, I think there's opportunity for us to think about how to speak more inclusively when we talk about the Asian American community. And also, also though, to look at how diverse we are, you yeah. know, we are not a monolith, you know, not at all. <laughs> yeah. So Anyway. A whole entire continent with many, many countries. Exactly. Yeah. That's uh, that's an important insight. So I appreciate that. Thank you. And um, yeah, I, and I, I loved the, like, I wrote about it in my dissertation. Like, I'm finalizing my dissertation today, actually. Mm -hmm. And uh, I wrote about that, the ends of adoption, the UC Irvine um, oh. symposium that we mm -hmm. had, like, mm -hmm. I think, Four years ago now, almost. Yeah, I think it's about four years ago. At UC Irvine, yeah, and uh, like I'll never ever forget that event because it was not just academic; it was one full of heart. Mm -hmm. It was one full of you know just everybody's like pain, you know, mm -hmm. just there. Mm -hmm. And um, I'll never ever forget it because it's like it was impossible. Because you know how academics are, we just like try to keep it dry, try to keep, like leave out all the sentiment, <laughs> blah blah blah. Yeah. You know, we do our best to to keep cool, but in right. that during that symposium, everybody was crying. Everybody, right. Right. Every, no, there wasn't a single person who did not emote. Right? It was just like impossible to get through that symposium without feeling emotional. Right. Because it has to do with like a very basic human need which mm -hmm. is just some care, some love, mm -hmm. you know, just some understanding and how all of those things, those very basic things just got so complicated mm -hmm. out of like war and mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. colonization and right. white savior mentality and white supremacy and all of those things. It's just like some very, very simple things like connection. It just got complicated out of all this bullshit. Right. And, um, yeah, I was just like, you know, like sometimes I'll even just think back to it. I'm just like, yeah, it just like it gets so emotional for me. It's mm -hmm. it's hard. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So uh, I love the work that you do, you know, and not just, you know, with your poetry, but, you know, your local activism, your day to day activism. And um, yeah, I mean, you keep doing you, you know, you're like such a strong person. And yeah, every time I every time I talk to you, I always like learn several things i always have several massively <laughs> enlightened takeaways so thank you for that and thank well, you thank for you. taking the time with me today absolutely i mean i've enjoyed our conversation i've been taking notes to different things that you said that i was like i have to remember that you know corrective history <laughs> and teaching humanity i mean yeah it's, it's always good to to dialogue with um you know i think with people that we have some synergies but also that maybe we come at things from different always and happy and belated is... earth day since since we brought that yeah. up. i actually ha i went to an earth day 
fair yesterday and they were handing stuff out in plastic and I'm like <laughs> I was like why they're like hi would you like some carrots and celery I was like sure but it's in plastic like little plastic baggies of and they're like yeah we know and I'm like so why are you here with your plastic baggies of carrots and celery and but I did take some because you know it's healthy food but then again I was like why is there plastic at this Earth Day fair I don't I did not understand that at all. I felt very, I feel actually a little hypocritical having taken the plastic baggies of veggies, but. But you know what? It's hilarious. At yeah. the very least, it's hilarious. And it is. We'll, we'll give him that. It's like, yeah. oh my God. It, it was funny though when they were like, yeah, we know. Like, <laughs> yes. We know and it year. can't be helped. Yeah, and maybe partly it's because of COVID. You know, they don't want to just have a veggie bowl sitting out there, your veggie platter. I think that has a big, I but, think it's a big proponent, yeah. Yeah. But so. still. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was like, wait, I thought today was Earth Day. <laughs> Great way to celebrate the Earth by killing the Earth even more. <laughs> yes, with a little plastic baggies of celery and carrots. Oh, my God. All yeah. right. It's great talking to you, Jelaine. Yeah, it's great talking with you too, Grace. Next week, we're going to talk about one of my favorite Korean dramas of all time called Fated to Love You. I wanted to talk about this show right after uh, discussing Successful Story of a Bright Girl, which I talked about on the episode with Ezra Blackrock. But, uh, you know, I wanted to celebrate AAPI Heritage Month, so I kind of put it in the back until... Um, next week so we have a great guest for next week as well and i'm really excited to talk about that show with you guys so stay tuned for that um watch the show if you want it's on vicky i believe so check it out it's a really really good show it's campy as hell i mean if you want to watch like the campiest show ever I, like this is like the camp level on this show is like 125. It's really, really high. So if you want to watch a show like that, this is the one. Okay. Like it's like a psychedelic trip, honestly. Um, so enjoy that one. And then we'll talk about it next week. Folks, if you haven't subscribed to my YouTube channel, I'm begging you, please subscribe to my YouTube channel. Like what is the deal? Why aren't people subscribing to my youtube channel just do it please for the love of god for fuck's sake um i am full on in the thick of writing my book right now so send me your support emails send me your questions whatever you want to say say it in an email send it to kdramaschool at gmail.com uh follow me on tiktok twitter and instagram at kdramaschool you guys it is such a pleasure being here every week with you all it is a lot of fucking work i will admit it's a lot of fucking work every single week it's like i'm dreading the editing process because it's so time consuming but i think about my listeners i think about you all and i think about how good i feel whenever i actually finish editing an episode and uploading it and then having it air live so i think about those things and that's what gets me through so thank you for your support thank you for listening and i will see you all next week 